Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Law From Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am super excited for today's guest. So we've got Marco Brown on the podcast, and Marco is the managing partner of Brown Family Law over in Utah. Taking a little look at his story, I'm really, really excited to learn how he's grown the firm. And Marco, you seem like the kind of guy who tells the whole story, the bad part and the good part. And then um, just to kind of get started off, like, tell us a little bit about how you got here. So I mean, like, kind of fast forwarding to today, super impressive practice. I think you got 17, 18 people people on staff right now, statewide, you know, top divorce attorney in Utah. Obviously, it started somewhere. So let's go back to the, the beginning and take us to, uh, to the present day. Okay, so I graduated 2007 from law school. I went to BYU here at, in Utah, and then BYU and the University of Utah, which are the two law schools, said I was too stupid for their law schools. So I had to leave and go somewhere else. And now I play their graduates so they can suck it. But anyway, we go and we do our thing. Graduating and I clerk for a year which I really enjoyed. And then I worked for an insurance defense firm, which I did not enjoy at all. It was a terrible job. So I got made it about 18 months. And I tell law students this all the time because of my own experience. Like your first job out of law school, you should learn what not to do, like what area of law not to do, not to work in, and what type of lawyer you should not be, right? Because that's what I learned from my first job. And it's been really invaluable, actually. So I made it about 18 months hated it, quit. And my wife came to me and said, hey, I want to go back to Utah because I want to get a doctorate at the University of Utah. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, let's do that. So we come back. This is 2010. It's the middle of the Great Recession. And no one is hiring in general. And no one is hiring me in particular because I'm a terrible employee. I've just figured this out. I was just, I was awful. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to have to do my own thing if I'm ever going to make it. And I did. I took everything that came in the door. I did all of the things that I tell people now not to do. And I tell people that because I learned that they were really bad decisions from this experience. But thankfully, I kind of made it work. I had no network. We were deeply in debt from law school because uh, one of the things that law school does really well is not teach you how to be a good lawyer, but they, what they do better than that is to indebt you up to your eyeballs, right? So we were deeply in debt, no network, no clients, nothing, just had to make it function. And thankfully did, serve my clients really well, but I was a terrible business person, absolutely awful. And no matter how good you are as a lawyer, if you suck at the business of law, your life is going to kind of suck because you're spending 12 hours a day doing a whole bunch of work where you should be getting that done in six hours, right? And then you're just not very good at you know, the business side of things. There's nothing you can do to kind of make up for that. And in about 2015, that's kind of what I figured out was... I was going to live a terrible life and I was probably going to die when I was about 60, maybe 65 of a heart attack, unless I figured out the business of law. So I decided to do that. And I read hundreds and hundreds of books. I started going and, and reading all the blogs I could on the business of law and just business in general, right? Because what I figured out is that most attorneys are really bad at this. And there are a few that are good at it. There are a few that are exceptional at it. But they usually don't talk about it too much. So I was learning from, from people that were relatively good at it and were willing to talk about it, but I was not learning from like the cream of the crop. So then I would go to other spaces and try to learn from the cream of the crop over there, right? And then implement that which worked for them and that which would work for me. 
And there was a lot of experimentation that went on during this period because I just didn't know what worked and what didn't. And if I have any gift, it's to be an experimenter and just, you know, try stuff. So I did, and I found some things that worked, and then I found some more things that worked, and I left, you know, things on the table that didn't work, and eventually came up with a pretty good model and a pretty profitable model and expanding that ever since. But, you know, there are five or six years in this process where I did not like myself very much. I did not like being an attorney. I mean, I liked attorneying, but I didn't like being an attorney because I just wasn't good at the money side of things. And if there's anything that I want to do is, is help my colleagues to kind of shorten that up so they don't have to go through five, six, seven years where they just hate their jobs, right? Because literally no one is willing to talk about this stuff with them. And I, I think that's a real travesty. Yeah. I mean, that's an awesome story. And thinking about the timelines too, I was impressed when you say you graduated law in 2007. I was more impressed when you said he, you started the practice in 2010. I was even more impressed when you said he more or less didn't really get serious with growing the, the practice like a business until 2015. Um, we're recording this right at the end of March in 2023. So, you know, you've gone from not happy with anything going on with the practice to basically dominating the practice area in pretty sizable state in the span of eight years. So you know, something must have really clicked in those, those eight years, right? But you're reminding yeah. me of something like, I heard this somewhere and I thought it was really uh, poignant. You having done that for five or six years, I mean, we run into attorneys that are closing out on the end of their career sometimes. And uh, there's this quote, it's like, you know, there's people who have 10 years of experience and there's people who have the same year 10 times. And it's like people can stay in that rut where, you know, you were finding yourself or there's nothing that will really force people out of it sometimes. And I think one of the, the downsides of legal as a field is it's lucrative enough to the point where you can you know, do a lot of things inefficiently and not be in the gutter. But you had that moment that made you forced to, to kind of have that moment of clarity, right? Yeah. So I call this uh, the great shower incident of 2015, actually. Like I can, I know exactly when it happened. So I, 15, like I said, like I'd done well. I was divorce attorney of the year back then as voted on my, by my peers and by the actual bar association. Like I won fair and square about it. Cause that was super cool. And then a couple of days after I won, I'm like, oh crap, I have all the same problems. Right. So I'm in the shower and this sort of thing had happened to me before, but today was different. So I get in there, first five minutes, I'm okay. And then I start to think about cases, right? My chest starts to constrict. My heart starts to palpitate. And I get a, a headache that starts right here on the crown of my head. And it's a stress headache. And by three o'clock in the afternoon, it is going to envelop my face. And it's just going to hurt because I've gone through this before a number of times. And I feel it coming on. I'm like, crap, it's going to be another day like this. I hate this. I hate this sort of thing. But this day was different in the sense that I'm, I'm still in the shower. I know this is it's starting to happen. But then I am literally shown my future. So I'm a believer. And this is, you know, this is God speaking to my soul and my head at this point. He literally showed me when I was 60 or 65, I was dead and I was in a casket and I was watching my own funeral. I was watching kids that I didn't have at that point mourn my dead body because I had not, I just continued to do what I was doing and I died because of it. And that happened, that was probably 15 seconds. I got out of that. I'm like, nope, nope, not doing that. That seems like a really bad ending. Like I got out of that shower and I said, okay, I gotta, I gotta switch everything. And I don't know how to do any of that. I didn't know how to switch any of it, change any of it. So then I, I started reading and I started thinking about, okay, what can I change? And then it just seemed super overwhelming, right? Because there were so many things. And then I thought to myself, okay, what's the one thing I can change that would change a whole bunch of other things? 
And that the answer to that was, I'm already doing all of this work and I'm only collecting like 50% of my billables, maybe 50%. It was probably like 35 to be totally frank about it. And I thought, oh, okay, what if I collected 100% on that? And then I use that money to solve other problems. So I, that's what I did. I said, okay, let's create a system in which I get paid 100% for the work I do. And then I can use that money to solve these other problems and, and make life better. And that's exactly what I did. And that's fantastic. And I definitely want to double click on the collecting 100% of what you have. But the first question I have before we get into that is for the person that's listening to this podcast right now, one of the things you hear all the time is, oh, man, that sounds nice, but I just can't find the time. I can't find the energy. And like, I'm assuming if you're in the point where you're getting these tension headaches, you're probably in a pretty similar position. So how did you get yourself? Was it just like you had more, you know, this motivated you to the point where you found the time? Or how are you able to really get the bandwidth to really be able to change the practice that wasn't available before that moment? Yeah, some of it was it was that. I mean, I would read, I would read until like two or three o'clock in the morning sometimes. And I like to sleep and I think sleep is incredibly important. But I mean, I was going to die if I kept doing what I did. So I thought, all right, I gotta do something else. And this is what I'm gonna give up for a little bit in order to figure it out. So yeah, I would I would lose some sleep to do that. I also would take some time during the day and just carve out some time. And I realized that that was going to create some stress in me. But again, like the alternative was worse, right? So yeah, you're probably going to have to spend some more time to figure some things out. But on the back end, you're going to save tremendous amounts of time and you're going to make tremendously more money. So you just have to realize that you have to make this the short-term sacrifice for the long-term gain. Yeah. And that's the thing too. It's like, I think you're able to identify that this isn't something you're going to make like a lifestyle change. Like, yeah, I'm just going to bed at 3am from now on, but you know, it's a tactical yeah. sprint. And you had, I think uh, I've heard this referred to as uh, like, I think Tony Robbins calls it emotional leverage, right? And it's like, okay, well, if the alternative is literally death, you'd be surprised what kind of energy you can find, right? So that's fantastic. Yeah. But let's, um, let's dive into this collection thing. So I've heard some stuff coming through from the Clio Trends Report different years around the similar things too. But what was happening in your practice? that was leading to these issues with collections and like you know have you talked to anyone else about what kind of issues might be common to, to attorneys that might be listening to this podcast right now yeah so i we're going to talk about the clio trends report in a second because it's actually a really good piece of work from clio so i didn't realize any of the clio trend stuff like this is wave this is before they did that i just knew that i was terrible at collecting so i had to create a system that allowed me to collect 100 because that was the easiest money i could find in the law firm because i was already doing the work right and for me the problems were really kind of twofold one i was scared to ask for money because i wasn't a business person and my law professors told me that the best thing i could do is do good or some such thing instead of like get paid and pay for my babies and then two you know the bar association just tells me that i should give away my crap for free all the time and they don't they don't teach anybody how to actually collect on the work they do because they're a bunch of bureaucrats and they don't know what the hell they're talking about right so there was that. So I was kind of scared about asking for money because I'd never been taught how to ask for it, which meant that I would invoice like once every three months, maybe. People don't want to pay when you invoice them every three months. They just don't. Like you have to invoice them every month. And that's one of my rules that I teach attorneys. And then the other was, I mean, the classic attorney, attorney mistake of taking a retainer and then allowing it to get to zero and then in the negative, and I would get it back to zero. So I'd always be like a creditor. I'd always be a banker, right? Instead of having money in trust that I could take from, it would be in the negative. 
And it was a horrible situation. So I you know, figured all this out and then I thought, okay, how do I have money in trust? How do I rewrite my retainer to make that happen? What, how much money should I have in trust? What should that look like? And I had to you know, figure all of that out. So that's the way I did it, but I just did it because I knew my problems and I was solving my problems. And then I read the Clio Trends Report. I, I, well, I went to ClioCon and then I read the, trio clen, uh, the Clio Trends Report. And I realized that most attorneys actually have the problem that I had. And because the average attorney is a solo, 56% of American attorneys are solos. They work on average eight hours a day. They build out four hours a day. They collect 1.8 to 1.9 hours per day on average. And this is consistent over years. So it goes from 18 to 21% collection on time spent in the office. Horrid. It's just, it's just freaking terrible. And that's when I realized like, oh my goodness, I'm not the only one because I thought I was the only one because no one ever talks about this. Lawyers lie to, to each other all the time because they don't want to seem like losers. And then I realized like, no, a lot of my colleagues are suffering the exact same way I was suffering for years and years and years. And that's why I talk about this stuff because no one was talking about it, right? Everyone just was kind of lying to themselves and everybody else about how, how well they were doing. So now as I talk to attorneys, uh, you know, they'll open up to me because I tell them my story and they're like, yeah, I have the same story actually. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's super funny. It's like, almost like this emperor has no clothes situation. I'll also say this too, just like given the situation you were in heading into this, it's like if being literally the top rated lawyer in your field in the state by the bar isn't practicing good enough law to merit getting collected, you know, maybe what people are being taught is indexing on the wrong stuff, right? Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. We're taught to, I mean, as attorneys, we're taught to kind of attorney. We're taught to think like attorneys and argue. And we're not taught that effectively in law school because, again, you know, law professors are bureaucrats. But we are certainly not taught to be effective people in the marketplace at all or how to make money or that we should be wealthy. Like, for the love of heaven, we're attorneys. Like, we're a cartel, you know, and how can you not make money as a cartel? But, they're, but we're not. Like, we're really bad at this. We're a cartel and we can't make cash, right? So but we need to talk to each other and say, look, it's okay to be wealthy. It's okay to make money. It's okay to, to walk and chew gum at the same time. Like, we can service our people exceptionally well and get paid really well for it. And that's exactly what we should do. And that's exactly what we need to do for our families and for our teams. Because the less money we make, the less money our teams make. And we're screwing our teams. And that's not morally okay. Yeah, I totally, I couldn't agree more. I'll also say too, just as far as the perspective of the client, it's like, you know, who's getting served better? The person who got taken by the solo who really didn't need to take this, but he was looking at the office rent bill that was coming due next month and is overextending himself. Or the person who's got a team with professionals at multiple levels that are seeing the things extensively. And, you know, God forbid they charge what's worth to, to get it to that, but that's actually going to provide a better outcome for the client. And it's like, you know, I think this kind of, I've been making this joke for a lot, but too, it's like, you know, there's a lot of people that are running pro bono practices and don't know it <laughs> or investing in a failing law firm and not knowing it because it, when things end up shaking out and, you know, people end up actually accounting for their time, <laughs> they're trying to bill for it. It's just not good, but that's, uh, you know, that's fantastic insight. And as far as kind of getting down to the brass tacks, what do you recommend for people to do with when to replenish retain? and how to get those things written up. And what are like in broad strokes, how do you recommend people do that these days? Yeah, so what you need to do is first you need to be on a schedule in the sense that you need to invoice on a schedule. I wake up really early on the first day of the month and I invoice everything. So it's done on the first day of the month. Then they go out, invoices all go out by the fifth of the month. We 
take credit card payments to replenish retainers on the 20th of the month. So it's very systematic. Like that's the first thing you have to do. Because if you don't do it and you don't have a system when you're going to do it, then it's going to be like the 10th of the month. You will not have done it. You're like, oh, I'll just wait till next month. You can't do that. You have to bill every month, bill on a system. And then what you need to do is you need to determine your retainer amount. Okay. And look, just make it up, whatever it is. If you think it's $2,500, just like 2X that and make it 5,000. Who cares, right? Like it's fine. You can always change it. But you just make up a number and you can get more refined over time. But making up the number in the beginning is okay. If you have any money in trust, you're ahead of like 95% of attorneys. So you get that money in trust and then you get a system in which you can repl automatically replenish that retainer. And there are, there are examples of this. Like, would think on the internet, although I just created my own. So if anybody wants to see our retainer agreement, I give it away for free all the time. Like, so that's totally fine. You can contact me and I'll get it to you. But that's a real integral piece of this puzzle is putting your retainer together so you can replenish automatically and you don't have to talk to them about it. Nothing. You just do it. And those are the three biggest components to the process. And I will say the other component is that you need to fire your bad clients, okay? Because your bad clients, you pay the stupid tax on your bad clients. And I paid hundreds of thousands of dollars in stupid tax. So like totally, like I get it. But what you need to do is identify the bad clients because the bad clients are not gonna pay you, especially if you've not had a good system to get paid in the past. And you need to just get rid of them, okay? You can use what I call the George Costanza, which is it's not you, it's me. I just can't do this anymore. I have to download my cases, like I'm, you know, whatever. Whatever you have to say to get rid of them, right? And get rid of all the F clients that you have. And you know who the F clients are. They're like the faces that you see at night that haunt your dreams, okay? Or your nightmares. Just get rid of all of them. Because once you do that and you implement a system that you, where you get paid automatically, your life will ameliorate very, very quickly, like very quickly. And your revenues will go up very quickly. Yeah. And I got to say, it's, it's kind of interesting. We, we deal with a lot of stuff that's similar when we're helping with clients about asking money at the end of a consultation or like the end of a sales process. But like, it's one of these things that people make it so large in their head, how scary it's going to be to ask for the money or how scary it's going to be to raise your rates or whatever the thing happens to be. And the crazy thing is, and I'm sure you experienced this when it happened. It was like the first time you did it and no one blinked an eye. You're like, damn, I could have been doing this the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to kind of segue from that too. So, I mean, it's really interesting. And this is like another thing I really like about this story is like, you know, another one of my favorite quotes is like, if you have problem and you, if you have a problem and money can solve that problem and you have the money, then you don't have a problem. So you've gotten to the point where you're two X, maybe three X the amount of money with not actually having to do any additional work. Awesome. Where did you go from there? So what were like the first key investments that you made in growing the firm and how did those end up working out for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, uh, the key investments are, are people. Okay. So, well, first is you, you have to invest in yourself. You should be investing at least 10% of your take-home pay in yourself. And whether that is in time, time and money. Okay. So 10% of your time should be spent on you and 10% of your money should be spent on you, increasing your skills in the business of law, that sort of thing. So that's where you start before you put money in a 401k, before you put money anywhere, like you should be investing in you because that'll be the greatest ROI that you ever have. 
And then after that, you should be investing in the people in your business. So for us, it was the investment to actually hire full-time attorneys, which I'd always been scared about. But once I started doing it, it expands your supply, right? And you have demand, so it expands your supply so they can start billing and you can have leverage over your people. And then once you do that, you can just build that leverage. So those are the two biggest things. Yeah. And to get kind of granular, as far as that first hire did you make, did you go straight to senior level attorney? Do you go for an associate, paralegal? What was like the first way you went? How do you recommend people do that? Yeah. So I, I probably made a mistake in this. I mean, looking back, I would have done it differently, but I would have done a thousand things differently. But the way I did it is I, I found an attorney who had family-like experience and just graduated and she worked contract work for me. And then I just built her up to the point where I hired her full time. And she worked for me for like six, I think six years, six or seven years. So that's how I started. And that's a good way to do it. You know, if you can find contract attorneys and you're just scared to death about hiring a full-time person and you're gonna do contract, great, do that. But honestly, I would get to the point now, as I'm looking back, one, I would have paid more. And two, I would have just offloaded everything to an attorney who was full-time at the very beginning and just taught that attorney my system and used the power of leverage to, to maximize the amount of money that that attorney was making to get it back, some of that back to me so I could then use that money to go hire other attorneys and improve the systems. Okay, interesting. So would you say, the I'm guessing that's probably the model you're following a little bit closer today in terms of the experience yeah. level. But at the time when you made that hire, was it more a skills capacity in the attorney you hired not being able to do that? Or do you think it was more of an internal mental thing about not being willing to let go of that or something else? It was completely internal. It was just me being scared about the whole thing, right? And back then, I didn't have the vision that I have now. So I still wanted to be the guy who did all the, the hearings and the trials and so on and so forth, because that was my identity. I'm an attorney, right? God made me to be an attorney and I'm a really, really good one. So that's, that was my identity. And I didn't want to give up that identity. And so I just hadn't thought through exactly what I wanted. And then over time, I thought through it and I thought, yeah, I don't want to do this for 30 years, right? So I have to get myself out of this. And then I had to figure out in my mind what that looked like and how to get there. And that's when I started to offload the litigation to other people who were going to be better at it than I was. Or if they weren't going to be better at it, I just had to accept that, that they were going to be 80% as good as me or 90% as good as me and be okay with that. And just kind of curiosity, like where do you see your identity in, within the firm right now? Like how do you identify if not as a lawyer as you did back in the day? Yeah, so I'm a CEO of, of legal companies now. I'm the CEO of this law firm. We will open adjacent legal services companies. And that's how I see myself now. I no longer, like I'll tell people I'm an attorney every once in a while, but really I'm the CEO of a company now. Yeah. No, I love that too. It's kind of interesting. Like I, I like to ask you the question, but like, I think a lot of people that end up getting like successful level, it really does kind of start with that identity level change because it, you know, it goes into what choices you make for yourself, you know, what you're going to let yourself like spend time reading after the, the day at work and that kind of stuff too. But ultimately there's only a certain point and you'd already gotten to the point and like you probably had a better situation than most because you'd gotten at the top. I think there's probably some people that are listening that like, you know, if I only had a little bit more esteem in my career, could I, you know, maybe get the, all these problems to magically go away, but you were able to have proof positive that wasn't the case, right? Don't, don't think that way. I mean, you can't think that way you're an adult, that's loser thinking. So I didn't have any cachet when I decided that I was going to fix these problems. I just needed to fix them problems because I literally was going to die, right? Like I just had to figure out how to fix the problems. And then you live into your cachet. You live into that vision that you have of yourself. 
So you just need to think, okay, this is what I want. This is how that looks in my head. And then I need to go figure out how to create a system and a law firm to make that happen. And a lot of times we allow other people's perception of us to determine our own success, right? Like, oh, people don't think this way of me. Therefore, I can't do these things because the people who do these things are, are a certain way. Well, I can tell you from personal experience, we are not that. We're not that way. Like we're all, we're all just making it up as we go along. So just make it up. It's okay. You want to be an expert in something? What does it take to be an expert in something? You tell yourself you're an expert in something and you go make it happen. And nobody look at uh, my uh, title on LinkedIn, by the way, uh, <laughs> self-anointed. But that's awesome. And as far as kind of scaling up too, so we've got the investment in people. I was taking a look at your site before this call and you guys have a lot of good stuff going on. So I want to switch gears a little bit to marketing. So I think it seems like you had a pretty good head of steam from like the referrals perspective, but what kind of investments did you make into that stuff? Did you ever find yourself getting ahead of your skis in terms of like the fulfillment versus the amount of cases coming in? And how do you think about this at the stage that you're at right now? Yeah. So marketing is really the highest leverage activity that you can engage in as an attorney in general, because attorneys don't work for attorneys. Attorneys work for rainmakers and rainmakers are marketers and rainmakers are, are salespeople and they're closers, right? So learn those arts, learn the art of marketing, learn the art of sales, learn the art of closing and sales and closing are two different things. So if you don't know that you got to learn it and you're going to have to, you're going to have to put in time to, to do that. And that has to be kind of your, your number one, if you're going to scale and expand. So yeah, get on that. Yeah. It's kind of interesting too, because it's just something that like, I, I think there's this belief that people have like, oh, what if I just like hired a good closer? But it's like, no, the truth is it's like, you'd be probably working for them at the end of the day, unfortunately. You can hire good closers and you should. I now, I've learned this, but the last thing I did in the law firm, the day-to-day -day thing I did was I did all of the consultations because I was the sell, right? And I was the closer. I've spent thousands and thousands of hours trying to figure this out like tens of thousands probably. And I thought I was the best at it. It was the thing that kept me in the office. And I was doing like six of these a day, right? Or four to six of them a day. And it was insane. I'm like, yeah, if I'm ever going to, you know, go to Italy and buy a villa and do these things that, that I really want to do and be there with my family, like I can't, can't be tied to the physically to the office. So then I decided, okay, I'm going to incentivize my attorneys to learn this skill and to close. So they get money every time they close a potential client. And then I kind of came up with a system and a training system. I bought a training system actually, and then modified it a little bit for what we do. And we have sales training every day and closing training every day. And the attorneys now do the, do the consultations. And you know what? They're freaking better at it than I am. You know, like I teach them, they end up being better at it than I am because I was doing like six a day and you just run out of steam after a while and they're doing one a day. So they are on it. Like every time they go in there, they're fresh and they are role played up. And they want that money and they're more effective than, than I was when I was doing it. And also like, not to mention the fact that like, you also had to run the entire firm outside of those six consultations too. Like that's a hat that you can never take off that they might too. And like, you know, I think you mentioned this earlier in the podcast. If you have somebody that's 80% as good as you, then over time, that focus could lead to more than 100% of what you were doing at a given time, right? Yeah. You have to accept that. You have to accept that if you are the best at certain aspects within your law firm, and you are going to be the best at certain aspects. If you are that, you just have to accept the fact that they're not going to be as good at you as you. And if it's 80%, that's cool. Like you're going to make, you're going to make a lot of money 
and save a lot of time by hiring people that are 80% as good as you because you can hire two of them or three of them and there's only one of you. So when you think about it, like it's not, you know, the return you get is not even close, but you just have to accept that. And here's the other thing. You have to create a system in which you make money and serve your clients exceptionally well with C players, okay? So you build a really, really robust system in order to do that. So you, you create the system that can work with C players and then you go find A players, right? That is the key to this. Because if you build a system that relies on A players, if you don't have, if you have B players, the system is going to break down and you're not going to serve clients well and you're not going to make money. So make it for C players and go find A players. That's fantastic. It's really interesting. I think I was uh, I was talking about this with somebody the other day too. Like, I think there's this kind of cult of the A player and like sometimes people just over-indexed on that too. But it's just like, yeah, honestly, I think talent can be a crutch for poor systems, right? And then all mm -hmm. it rolls up to you as the CEO or whoever's organizing that. But yeah, having the system that's good enough because, you know, the A player on their worst, worst day can be a C player sometimes too. And like the system that works with a C player could be excelled at by an A player. And, and I'm, I'm probably sure that like some of these A players are going to be providing feedback and making the system better and better themselves too, right? Yeah, exactly. They are a crutch, right? You get A players and you don't need to do anything because they just figure it all out. And that's great, but you can't build a sustainable law firm on unicorns. You just can't. And definitely not like in every climate too. Like I think anyone who's been trying to hire in the past couple of years until very recently has probably found A players in pretty short supply. So if you know, if that's the grist that keeps your law firm going, you know, it's kind of an insurance policy to have something that's that's built out for C players. Not that you want to hire them, but look, if you have to in a pinch, it's <laughs> it's, it's okay, right? And then one kind of last question to, to kind of bring it down to, like, I really think like there's a lot of mysticism that's surrounding sales hires and that kind of stuff too. But the way I'm hearing you talk about it, it's like, does it feel substantially different to train people to do sales than any other process in, in the business? Or was that more or less same principles, different domain? No, it's, it's different. So I always, I always say this, look, Attorneys are salespeople. Really, bad salespeople are good salespeople because we sell. That's all we do, actually. So we sell client potential clients to become clients, and then we sell judges on our arguments. Right? It's just all sales. It's persuasion and sales. That's it. And then we sell other attorneys on our negotiations or our positions. We sell mediators. You know, we sell our clients to keep to continue being our clients every time we talk to them. Right? This is all we do is sales. So, but it is different to teach sales and closing as a way of acquiring clients than it is to teach, you know, anything else in the law firm, really. And there are no attorneys that teach sales and there are no attorneys that teach closing to their people. Like, I think I'm the only one in the United States that has a daily meeting in order to teach his team how to do this sort of stuff. And then it trans, but the nice thing is it translates so well to all of the other stuff that we do as attorneys that it's like the best time we ever spend with each other role-playing these things out because it just makes us better in all of these other aspects. But you know, if I didn't do this, I'd just be training them how to write brief better or something like that and how to be persuasive on paper. And that, you know, that's great. And it follow again, it follows the same principles. But once you make the commitment to actually role-playing these things every day, you know, how to overcome objections, how to how to persuade, how to do this, that, and the other. It bleeds into all the other portions of the job and you don't have to teach those other things. You just get to teach this one thing and it goes throughout your entire organization. Like, yeah, it's a really interesting perspective. And I was going to say, it's like, you know, just kind of going back to that through line of getting more money to solve different problems. It's like, that's also a problem that even if not directly gives you a lot more bullets to, fi to fire at other problems you might have in the business, right? 
it has solved a lot of problems and it has resulted in millions and millions of additional dollars to, to us. It is that sales component is, if not the best system I've ever implemented in the law firm, it's certainly like the second. And it's fantastic too. Like it's, you know, daily huddles, a lot of this stuff too, just like there's people who that overthink this or they're looking for like the magic holy grail, like really like objection handle or something like that. But like, you know, sometimes you just got to show up and make sure that people are being held accountable and doing the damn work and doing the damn work yourself too, right? But um, yep. that's fantastic. But um, Mark, this has been an awesome conversation, man. For anyone who's kind of like digging this, anyone who wants to reach out, what's like the best way to get in your world? Uh, so I put a lot of content on LinkedIn. You just, I'm just going to say Google, you can search Marco Brown, Utah or Brown Family Law, and I'm going to come up. So you can follow me there. You can message me there. If you want to get to me directly, it's Marco at brownfamilylaw.com. Totally fine. If you got any problems, you, you need anything from me. I really try to be good to my colleagues. I know how hard it is to go through this sort of stuff when you're not good at business and how isolating that is. And I don't want my colleagues to feel that way. I really don't. I, I, have, a, I have a duty to talk about these things and to try to help my colleagues not go through what I, what I went through because I'm a freak. And I went through it and I got out the other side only because I'm a damn freak. And most people are not like this and they're going to live terrible lives uh, if they continue down this path. So I try to help them out of it. It's super generous of you to share that. And like, also just to kind of come on and share everything with this, like, I know it's super personal to you to be able to help as many people as possible. And like, you know, it's in a really open hearted way. It's like, you're one of the few people that we've had on the show to share all this information that doesn't have a, you know, secret uh, coaching program or something, some uh, $14 ebook or something like that. Not that we have that kind of people on the podcast, but you no, know, super appreciate all the insight, Marco. It's been fantastic talking to you. And um, for everybody else, I'll see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.